Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim Rochelles. Today's episode 254, we're going to be interviewing Hazel. How are you doing today, Hazel? I'm so good. I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It means a lot. Yeah. All right. So let's get started. Like I was telling you before, same question I ask everybody. Let's start with your childhood and growing up. Yeah. Um, that is interesting because it is always the way it starts, right? Uh, exactly. The addiction and all that. So I was, um, I grew up in San Diego, all over kind of the California area. Um, my parents are still together. They've been married 50 years. Wow, um, that's a long time. Crazy. Yeah, I have an older sister, a younger brother. So I'm smack dab in the middle, meeting all of those great stereotypes of the middle child. Um, I am the only alcoholic in my immediate family, but my parents were both raised by alcoholics. My dad's mom died of cirrhosis of the liver when he was like 13 years old. Wow. Um, dad drank his whole life. And my mom's dad was from Holland, came over after World War II, drank for a very long time. So lots of alcoholism in my family but in my immediate family i am the the special the special one that's good yeah so um i i think i was mentioning to you earlier my first addiction that i really identify with is an eating disorder i have struggled with anorexia since i was nine years old and um it became the way that i I was able to deal with pain in my life when I didn't have the words or I didn't have control or I didn't have a voice or people weren't paying attention. Anorexia became a way that I could say, um, sometimes it became the spite. Like I felt like I have some, you know, like emotional trauma with my mom and so the anorexia, I think, kind of started as a way to get back at her, right? I could do this thing that she could not do. She was a, a regular mom, kind of battled with her weight. And it was a way for me to spite her. And it was a way for me to control kind of my own pain. Um, and that lasted, I mean, I still am in recovery for that. And that recovery is very up and down at times. It's different than alcohol because with alcohol, you can stop drinking and you can never drink again, right? It's pretty yep. easy on the surface. But with an eating disorder, I am faced day to day with this addiction, right? No, I know I have, I have eating disorder also. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, I've been I've been anorexic. I've been bulimic before. Crazy. I'm it's good to hear like a man also share that because I think more men deal with it than they actually Oh yeah, do. we we're too tough to admit it. Right. Most men right. would not admit that. I just it is what it is though. I did it. You know what I mean? For sure. It's for sure. But I also have a lot of body image issues. Like I, I definitely have body dysmorphia. Like whatever you see, I don't see. A hundred percent. Like even when I was like right now I'm a little overweight, but even when I was right on target weight, I didn't feel that way. I felt big yeah. for some reason. And my ex girlfriend to say to me, like, do you not see yourself? Like she she eventually caught on. She goes, you obviously just don't see what anyone else sees. Yeah, it is such a crazy, a crazy mind fuck, right? In so Absolutely. many 
consensus. Um, so that was, you know, the first the first addiction. If we think of addiction is any behavior or substance that um, medicates feelings or, you know, takes pain away, that was definitely what I was using it for. So it worked until I found boys in high school and it worked until I found alcohol. And then that became another way to get validation, deal with like that ick and unrest that I kind of had. It became a way to replace that. Did you also um, have body magicians? Was that part of it? Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um, as well as this perfectionism, right? That like, it was okay for you to look whatever way you looked, but for me, it had to look perfect. And, um, you know, I'm super petite and I am, you know, very small. And I just remember in high school guys saying to me, oh my God, you're so hot. You're so little, you're so tiny. And that was like, it made me feel like, so if I'm not, then you won't like me. If I'm yeah. not, then I'm not attractive. If I'm not, then where will the validation be? Right. So, you know, and it's interesting. A lot of times girls that develop an eating disorder have issues with their dad, you know, or girls that develop like issues with male validation <laughs> and you know, all of that. You know, you hear people talk about daddy issues. I wonder My, why that is. Yeah, I think it's because if you don't get validation from your father figure, you are going you need it instinctually. And so you're going to seek it from any other source that will give it to you. Right. Yeah. Um, for me, I am very close to my dad. And while I had some emotional neglect from my mom, my dad was my person. And so for me, the seeking male validation was that's where I get it, right? It's just, it's from my dad. It's from men. I know I can count on that. Um, so it's a little bit of a different spin to that, but you know, that's, that's been a constant in my life is this need for somebody else to tell me that I'm good enough. Right. And alcohol just entered in and was like, who the fuck cares? You're great. You're fun. You're a party girl. You're, you know, you do it on your own without them. For sure. And so uh, when I started drinking in high school, immediately it was out of control. I was craving all the time. I could like smell it, you know. How old were you when you first tried? I was 16 years old. <clears throat> and that was the I first remember... thing you ever did? Any drugs or alcohol? Um, no, I did. I smoked pot and I can't remember if that came first or it was probably alcohol. I was like, I'm raised... Um, LDS, so Mormon, um, I still am, which, you know, makes it difficult to be like an alcoholic who is also, you know, a Mormon. So I was a very good prude little girl for a long time until I wasn't. And then it was like all hell broke loose. Um, so when I found the alcohol, it was back when there were wine coolers. I don't know how old you are, but oh, yeah, back I remember. Yeah, back in the day of like Fuzzy Navel or Zima. Zima was Zima, the first yeah. thing I tried. Yeah. Um, that Mike's was Hard Lemonade was another one. Yeah. I, or, oh, my other favorite was Boone Strawberry Hill, right? That <laughs> like big jug of like strawberry wine. Um, 
And I remember drinking that fuzzy navel for the first time thinking, why would I ever drink water again? When I, this is so good. Like I would never drink juice again when I could drink this, you know? And I just think for some people, addiction starts as like a slow train, right? That's like gaining momentum and gaining speed until it gets going like full, full board. For me, it was like bullet train right off the bat, right? I was drinking whenever I could. You know, in high school, that becomes harder, but I knew boys that worked, you know, at like the local, um, like convenience store, I could get alcohol from them. You know, when you're a pretty fun girl, it's not hard to get alcohol, you know, in high school. Um, I was drinking every weekend. I was skipping school and I, I finally got, um, I was on like student government. And it was like the lip sync, you know, one night at school and I was like in charge of it and what way to make the lip sync better, but to like drink my, I can't remember what was in it, my big gulp cup mug of like alcohol. And my friends and I were like really out of control. Um, I get in trouble with the vice principal. Um, I get, I get in trouble for drinking. They call my parents. My dad comes. He's like, so disappointed. I get suspended for like a week. Um, again, like in my family, that's unheard of. Um, and that was crazy because my parents, you know, I'm a master manipulator in my addiction. And so I had convinced them that that was the first time I ever drank. I was just trying it. You know, somebody had it. I, I didn't know. And um, of course, that wasn't true. And I remember... I remember my dad was like, he was scared to death, right? His mom died of alcohol, alcoholism. His dad was awful. Like I grew up with alcoholism, almost like a, its own entity in our family, almost as if it was like another, like an aunt or an uncle. It yeah. was always present. Talking about it was always present and it was always you kids should never even pick it up and try one drink because you don't know. And it probably will be, you know, a problem for you. And so I grew up with this like fear about it. And when I was drinking mm -hmm. and my dad found out, I literally remember him like falling on the floor, crying, saying, Oh my God, I can't do this. I can't have alcohol be in my family. I can't lose somebody else. And I remember like, I love him so much. Right. And I'm seeing this and I, I was like, it's not going to happen to me. You know, it'll be different. And, um, so the drinking was out of control. Um, when I graduated, I moved to Utah um, I lived in Provo. I had a friend that was going to BYU. And so I lived in Provo for the summer and um, kind of stopped drinking for the summer and um, and then moved to Logan. It's a tiny town where Utah State is. Went there for a year, was white knuckled, sober until the end of the year. And then things kind of got out of control. Um, and then I moved back home and 
was super lonely. My parents had moved from San Diego to the Bay Area. I knew nobody. And um, I started dating some guy who was this huge asshole. We started drinking together, started using a lot of drugs together. He was very abusive. What kind of drugs were you using? um, A pot and a lot of ecstasy. Um, I had a couple of really scary experiences with ecstasy where um, um, I had taken too much and like I couldn't control my body. I don't know. You said that you've taken ecstasy before, but like my jaw was just like I could not control. Oh, my yeah. Jaw. Going back and forth like this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or just shaking as if I were like freezing cold. Really? Yeah. And like, I remember my arms, my hands, like kind of curling up, you know, like almost in this like weird fetal position. Yeah. It was really scary, but um, yeah. And it's interesting, all the asshole guys I had ever been with who were doing their own drugs and whatever, my drinking always was an issue. Right. If they were like, doing their stuff, at some point it was like, you were drinking and it's out of control, you know? So um, kind of fast forward, I would be able to pull it together for a little while, you know, like have some periods of being sober. Um, I was gonna get engaged or I, I was engaged when I was like 21 and to like a good Mormon boy, I thought that was gonna save my life and save me and redeem me from all my, sins he called off our wedding three weeks before so invitations out final wedding dress fitting still had to do pick up his ring and I remember like that was so devastating to me and in that moment I knew if I don't do something different I'm going to go back to the life I was living so I decided to go on a mission for my church. I served a LDS mission and I went to Slovenia for a year and a half. Um, Slovenia used to be part of Yugoslavia. It is very Eastern Europe. Um, yeah, it was a hard place to be a missionary. I was sober that whole time, got home, married somebody when I was really young, somebody else um, drank. He cheated on me. We ended up getting divorced like four years in met my husband that I'm married to now. And um, while I was really grateful the marriage ended, he was cheating on me and I wanted to get out. That gave me like a justified reason to leave. You know, when you're a pretty girl and your validation comes from how you look and, you know, people's response to you, when you have a husband who's cheating on you with somebody that's not as cute as you, right? Like that fucks with your head. Yeah. And so my drinking <clears throat> just viral. Um, and, um, you know, my husband met me and I was super fun. I'm super fun to, you know, hang out with. Drunk Hazel is super fun to have sex with, you know, like all of that was very fun. For, for my husband and I, and um, until it wasn't, you know, and my drinking just became more and more a problem. My husband's super normal, doesn't drink anymore at all, quit drinking when I quit, um, you know, could take it or leave it. And um, 
remember right before we got married, we went to Las Vegas with some friends and I was blackout, out of control. I thought he was going to call off our wedding. It was a really scary, ugly night. And um, so I was on my best behavior for a little while. And yeah, you know, time passed. We get pregnant. I have two babies. I don't quit drinking when I'm pregnant. Um, I'm not drinking a ton, but I don't quit. We lived in the Bay area where like drinking culture is very acceptable, right? If you're drinking wine, you can be pregnant. Nobody's going to think anything about you. Right. Um, so it, I kind of hit it underneath all of that. And, um, yeah, it just, it got worse. It got worse. I knew I had a problem for years. And, um, my family started to be really concerned. My husband was really concerned. I knew that if they were going to give me the ultimatum to go to rehab, that I was going to lose absolutely everything in my life. And so I decided one Monday morning that I was going to go to a meeting. My kids were really little. Um, at the end of my drinking, I had so much like social anxiety that going somewhere by myself was like, I would never do that. And so I woke up um, Monday morning, I looked at meetings, I got a babysitter, I didn't call my husband to tell him, I went and I sat in that meeting. And it was a weird format of a meeting. It was like a speaker. And then in the middle, they paused and they read the promises. And then they kept going after that. And I had never heard the promises, obviously. And I remember just sitting in that meeting, crying and feeling like so broken and hearing those promises. There was so much hope. I've never heard and the I, promises. What, 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 give me an example. Oh, yeah. So in AA, there are the 12 steps. And then there are the promises, which, you know, they read usually at the end of every AA meeting. And it's like, if we are painstaking before we are halfway through, we will be amazed how our, you know, um, our lives change. We will understand situations that used to baffle us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations. Um, yeah, I'll link them. I'll send them to you. Maybe you link it in your show notes. Yeah. They're so beautiful. And I just remember feeling like, oh, my God, this is where I belong. I get home from the meeting. I call my husband. I'm like, you're never going to believe what I just did. And he was shocked. And um, I met my sponsor at that first meeting. I met another woman at that first meeting who was like, come to another meeting tomorrow night. I went, it was an all women's meeting. Um, that was really powerful for me because I don't know if you experienced this when you got sober, but when you are in your addiction, we have this like stereotype of what we think an addict or an alcoholic looks like, right? Yes. It looks like a homeless bum on the street. And you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, that's not me, right? I'm, I'm not that bad. And I remember walking into this all women's meeting and seeing these beautiful, successful, happy women that were moms, you know, they worked, they were professionals. 
And I thought, if these women can be alcoholic, then I can be an alcoholic and it's okay. And I started going to meetings all the time. I remember telling my husband, I'm like, I think people go to meetings like every day. And he was like, oh, well, you probably don't have to because you're not that bad. And I'm like, no, I, I think that's what people do to stay sober. And so I started doing that. We changed our family schedule. You know, my husband worked. He would always make sure he was home so I could go to a meeting at night. My kids were like a year and a half and three years old. And I would drag them to childcare meetings. I would leave them crying in the childcare room and I would go sit in a meeting. Um, I primarily only went to women's meetings. And it was in those meetings that I learned how to be, how to be sober, but I learned how to be a sober mom. I learned how to be a sober wife, how to be a sober daughter. Um, and I mean, I went to AA meetings like I was in treatment, right? I went every single day for years. Give us some of the examples of things they taught you to deal with this. Yeah, I would hear these women in there that would have like 30 years of sobriety. And one of the things about these women that I really loved and respected with 30 years of sobriety, they were going to multiple meetings a week, right? So this example of if you want to keep this, you stay engaged. Um, I learned that I could... I could have this huge fight with my husband. I could come to an AA meeting. I could share about it and I could get support. I could hear other women who I really respected their sobriety come and deal with all sorts of crazy shit and they could stay sober. So I learned from these women that I had to just be honest and tell my truth all the time. One of my first sponsors said, said, you can't save your ass and save your face at the same time. And I used to be so concerned with like what people thought of me and like the mask I was presenting that I was dying behind all of that. And so to save my own ass, I just started like telling my truth, you know, whatever I was struggling with, I would bring that to a meeting. I had a really strong home group that I never missed. I always had commitments at my meetings, so I had to go. Um, I just never let there be an excuse. I became friends with so many of those women, and we would meet for lunch, and we would go to dinner. Um, I was super involved that way. I started sponsoring women like maybe a year and a half in, and um yeah, I remember this is a really interesting thing. I remember this woman in my home group, she had like 11 years of sobriety and she was a regular. She came to our meeting the night her son drowned in the high school swimming pool. Oh my God. That happened during the day. She comes to me and she tells everybody what happened and it's like, it's horrific. Oh, there it is. Say that one more time. Yeah. She came to. Low. 
Okay. She came to a meeting the night that her son had drowned yeah. in the high school pool. Yeah, heard that. And yeah, she's telling us this whole thing. And it is just like, it is so awful. And there was a piece of me, right, subconsciously that was like, oh, I mean, it would be okay to drink over that, right? And this woman came to the meeting every week. She was going to meetings every night. Her grief was just like spilled out on the table every night, all the time, right? She just came and it was mad. And then she was sad and she was dealing with her husband and how he was dealing with it. There was this huge investigation and, you know, lawsuit. And um, it was their only child and they had tried really hard to get pregnant. So, I mean, it was awful. And I watched her stay sober through that whole experience by coming to the meeting and just sharing what was actually going on. And that was a huge lesson to me that I can't go and pretend everything's fine. I have to come to these meetings and just be real. And that's what I think saved me and taught me how to live you know, live sober, that there's no excuse to not be sober. Um, I can find excuses to want to hide, but nothing is going to like give me the freedom that like being truthful and getting like feedback from other women um, is going to give me. That's great. Yeah. It's good to find a, a support system. That's one of the most important things. You need community. Definitely yeah. need community in your life. It really is, you know, and now I work in addiction and recovery as a substance <clears throat> use disorder counselor. I work in an outpatient program. And so our clients are in all day, day group. They live in our sober living. They have a job. They kind of are like stepping into regular life again. They graduate from our day group. They go to night group. Um, they're with us usually for like 90 days. And um you can tell very quickly people that are going to have like a fighting chance and the people that are just in there, you know, um, like putting in their time. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I tell people, I'm like, if you think that, and it's the same in AA, it's the same in treatment. If you think that sitting your ass in a chair every night for a week or, you know, going to a meeting every week or sitting in here for 90 days. If you think that sitting your ass in this chair is what's going to teach you to be sober, you are so wrong. The only thing that is going to get you sober and keep you sober is if you work, put in the work, whether that's working the steps, whether that's working with a counselor, a therapist. Um, and I always tell my clients, we spend so much of our lives as addicts hiding from pain, numbing pain, right? Like escaping from pain in our lives. And if you want to stay sober, you've got to face the pain. Like the pain is the only way you have to face it and you have to walk through it um, and not try to avoid it because on the other side of that pain is like a more authentic, beautiful version of yourself. And I always want to know that that woman 
more than I am afraid to look at the pain or do the work around it. I want to know her. She is who I really am. And so I try to convey that to my clients, looking at your pain and being brave enough to walk through it, whether that pain is dealing with trauma from your past, trauma, you know, current day, dealing with grief that's unresolved, you know, whatever it is, that is the only way out. And so the people that are really willing to do that, I see have a fighting chance. The people that do that not, not only in recovery, like in a program, but then continue to do that after, you know, in their regular life, that's how you get long-term sobriety. You keep working. You can't say, oh, I did this work back then and that's enough. No, you have to keep putting in the work. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely does. Would you say that working in the addiction field keeps you sober versus it would keep you more sober versus like if you just had a regular job that was just, you know, not obviously in the addiction field? Yeah. Um, when I, I had like a regular job, I went to a ton of meetings. So I felt like that that was keeping me in it. Um, now working in this field, I don't go to meetings because I literally am like running a meeting every single day, you yeah. know, with my clients. Um, but it absolutely keeps me sober because I see people that were worse off than even I was, or I see people that like by the skin of my own teeth, I, I didn't, you know, take that path or this, you know, I mean, like in our lives, there's such fine lines of like, I didn't ever get pulled over for a DUI. Part of that is because I had a really enabling husband who would come and get me or follow me home while I was drunk, you know, and then I see clients that have like three felony DUIs and they're, they're court ordered and they're, you know, so it's like, I can see very similar parallels in my own life and I can think, oh my God, right? Like who's to say that couldn't have happened to me or if I go back that that can't happen to me. So that's very helpful, I think. So whether you work in addiction or not, like you have to keep going to meetings so you can see how close and how real that addiction really is, right? We're only as far away as the next drink from losing our recovery. And every day I have to be doing something to put distance between between the two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've had quite the journey and you said you've been sober about 11 years now, right? Yeah. 11 years in um, July. Awesome. And it's, it's really great. Um, my kids, you know, my kids, like I said, they were really little when I got sober and they didn't, they didn't really know. They knew I was going to meetings and I, I would always tell them I'm going to meetings so I can learn how to be a better mom. I'm going to meetings so I can learn to be like a better me. And then at some point I started talking to them about, you know, recovery and alcoholism and they're surrounded by this life that I live now, right. Working in recovery. And, um, I feel like it's a much better way for them to see that the realness of addiction and where that can take them. They see clients or hear clients that I have that were like, sober and living a great life and then lost everything 
and they see like the random few that like make it out on the other side. So I think it's good for them to see that. I just see that whole spectrum, right? I don't ever want to instill fear in my kids about drinking like I had, but they're, they're around kind of all sides of the spectrum of recovery and addiction. And I think that's, that's really good. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's getting close to the end here. I think it's been a great interview. How do you feel? Yeah, I feel so good. Thank you so much for having me. I found you like randomly on some addiction recovery Facebook group, right? Um, and yeah, I'm always grateful to share my story and was excited for this opportunity. So thank you so much. I would love if I could give like a quick little um, like plug for, you know, what else I do. Yeah, besides, absolutely. Let's talk about yeah. that. Besides working in just addiction recovery, I work as a life coach and I work with people both in recovery or anybody that is kind of feeling like I'm not living the life that I feel like I should be, or I just feel like I'm still stuck in this past or still dealing with this issue. And I want to be able to move past that. Um, My specialty is I, I use experiential therapy. Experiential is basically anything other than traditional sitting and talking with a client. I think that our brains can sometimes fuck us up the most by telling us like, oh no, this is what happened. Oh, I can make sense of that. Oh, this is why. Oh, I can move past this. But your subconscious brain, right? The biggest part of your brain doesn't believe what you can like logic out. And so experiential therapy really is designed to get people into their body exploring like what the feelings are and um, being able to look at it that way. So I do lots of stuff like psychodrama. I do lots of inner child work. I do um, empty chair work, play therapy, art therapy. And, you know, the, the lives that I see my clients get to live because of that is so beautiful. So, yeah, I mean, I have a website. It is hazelmason.com. I love working with people kind of from all over the the nation. I work with people new in recovery. I work with big um, tech guys that founded companies and, you know, are trying to show up better in their lives. And so I work with people from all over. That's great. It's great that you're giving back and helping. It's part of the thing that keeps us sober. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, thank you so much. It was so good to meet you. I have loved listening to your past episodes. You have such like a great, um, like spectrum of people, you know, that yeah, I try to get as wide of audience as possible. I'm sorry. Like, uh, the people that are doing the interviews, like I've had sex addicts, gambling addicts, drug addicts, alcoholics. I try to, cause everyone has, I want to have an episode for everybody to listen to. If you're a gambler, you can find one of our episodes and stuff like that, you know? I love that. It's so true, right? Like addiction is addiction is addiction. Just what we are addicted to is different. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. So um, hang tight for me. Give me one second here. I'm going to do our sales pitch. Oh, I love it. Yeah. 
All right. Everyone watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like. Also, subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can check us out on all social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Instagram, and TikTok, as well as a bunch of others. Um, I also suggest checking out our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There's plenty of free resources as well as free literature. And Addicts Anonymous has a book coming out soon called Addicts Anonymous, Our Stories. That should be out within the next few weeks. And I'll keep you posted on that. So I hope you really enjoyed the podcast today. And until next time.